This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. The second part of this episode with Dr. Grayson was a tough one for me. I share a story about an intrusive thought I experienced and had to sit in a lot of uncertainty to keep the interview going. But we got there. And I might still be sitting in a little bit of it. In case you missed the first part of this episode, we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Grayson today. John is a licensed psychologist, director of the Grayson Centre in LA, and adjunct clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and the behavioural sciences at the University of Southern California. John has been specialising in the treatment of OCD for more than 40 years and is the recipient of the Patty Perkins Lifetime Achievement Award. He is also the author of an award-winning self-help book, Freedom from Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, a personalised recovery program for living with uncertainty. In the second part of this episode, you'll hear us continue our discussion with Dr. Grayson on the concept of what it's like to live in uncertainty and the challenges that clinicians and clients face when fully embracing true uncertainty. You'll also hear him reference Stephen King and the very bloody True Blood series on HBO. Curious? Let's get started. It made me think when you made reference before to the question of, as a parent, if your child died, what would happen? Being a parent myself, my children dying is something that comes to mind often. And what I think about is that idea about if they died, could I go on? The answer is, you know, I could. But then it gets so complex, doesn't it? Because then I judge myself for that. And and there's guilt and shame that I could go on living. And there is so much complexity too. It's not just a question of black and white, can I accept this or not? Because the emotionals and the judgments and the person that we're afraid that we'll be or we want to be, I mean, it's very complex stuff, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you work with your clients around this? So how do you teach accepting uncertainty? How do you help people change their mindset? This is probably the thing that I most enjoy working with OCD because I think there's the general answer that there is no certainty, that the answer to every decision we make is a guess. Not a wild guess. You know, you get married on your wedding day and Unless you're psycho, you figure it's going to last forever. And that's a great feeling, except for one thing. That feeling of certainty, at least in the States, is 50% of the time wrong. And this is what the people are trying to get, that certainty feeling. It's not like it's worth it. You know, if you get divorced after one year, I guess it was a mistake. And I guess 50 years is like, I guess I did well. And seven years of wonderful marriage followed by three years of hell and divorce. I don't know what you call it, but you didn't know the answer on your wedding day. I had another client who was doing really well. Even though she was doing great in treatment, she said, I really, and she lets me talk about her, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about her. She was saying, my heart, since I've been a little kid, I've always felt that I do have control over things and like I can do things. Like if I got cancer and they told me it was hopeless, I'd find a way to get it cured. And I said, okay, like what would you do? And she said, well, I'd go on the internet. I said, okay, let me get this straight. 
I know you'd see the best doctors. They haven't figured out what's wrong. And you're going to go on the internet and find the cure from all the quackery on the internet and be able to tell the difference. Now, for some reason, magically, on this day, that got through and she just looked up kind of a little bewildered and went like, but what is there? And I said to her, the odds, which she kind of quietly said, the odds. And I've had some patients, when they come to this realization, they might have a very anxious week or two as they're kind of, she was in some way overwhelmed. And I explained to her, like, you know, you're feeling overwhelmed for a great reason. It's not like, oh, I've just, we're talking about this idea. We've just destroyed the entire structure you've been living with your whole life just now. Like, we blew it apart. So this is really big. She went home, and when she came back, she said, all week I just went around wondering, going, the odds, the odds. But she was doing it in a positive way. Because she was mourning, do you think? Do you think that's what it was, is that she was sitting with her grief? She was mourning, but she bypassed a bunch. She was like accepting, you know? She was, <laughs> you know, and she had a bunch of real things happen that she had had to deal with. So she was well set up. Period where her sister had cancer, maybe was going to really die. And this beloved dog, I mean, all these things were happening. And she has so embraced that because the thing about this idea, and it's also hard to get help patients understand is we're not talking about you have to do this for treatment. This is life. And if you overcome OCD, you're not going to be normal. You're going to be better than normal because the average person does not deal with uncertainty. You actually have three groups. Those people who are overwhelmed by what can happen, the people who use denial, and the really small group who accept. And you're in this group where you're in heaven or hell. You don't get to do denial even if you'd like it. So yeah, you'll be better. And actually the pandemic pointed that out to them because our patients who did well were doing better than their families. They were like, they're crazy because that's <laughs> what happens. That's the kind of the norm. Like they can get away with it, but it catches up sooner or later. There's that general thing with that we're talking about with clients about nothing certain. But then for each form of OCD, I think it's different. So, you know, if I'm thinking of, I don't know if you want me just to do like brief snippets, because, you know, I can literally go five hours. It's <laughs> only not going that long. So, I mean, if we're talking about harm OCD, that maybe I'm going to kill my family. You know, I will point out, like, first of all, you're not at greater risk to harm your family than I am. So I have no idea whether tonight I'm going to go home and slice and dice my wife. I hope I don't, but there's nothing I can do to prevent it. And, you know, I'll talk about the nature of the thoughts. And I generally would say there's no such thing as an intrusive thought. And there is if you're actually psychotic, but, if, you know, otherwise you're just thinking normal thoughts. Somebody once asked Stephen King, why do you write about such horrible things? And he said, what makes you think I have a choice? <laughs> Meaning not that he has OCD, but the questions of good and evil and what is the evil in me and what's the evil in the others are interesting to him. And because he's a writer, he writes about it. The reason we know everybody thinks about it, he's rich. <laughs> and so the difference between you and Stephen King is he's rich. And you know, to write the character, he needs to think about why would this be fun to do this horrible thing? Why would I like doing it? And people read about it because it's a vicarious way of trying to explore the nature of good and evil and all that. And the other thing, and all this, this is getting to be an old show and I have to find a newer one, point out there is the show True Blood, right? Good vampires, bad vampires, the heroine is in love with a good vampire because it's HBO, there's explicit sex every show. But their explicit sex is every time he chomps down her neck and blood comes pouring out. But in this show, that's a good thing and the people love it. 
and you're telling me you have weird thoughts. Because <laughs> yeah. right? this was not a weird cult show of this <laughs> Everybody loves this show. So, you know, helping them understand it's normal. Now, does it mean you're not going to slice and dice your spouse tonight? People can go crazy. Oh, probability events occur. I don't walk in the middle of the highway because I don't want to get hit, but walking on the sidewalk is not protection because somebody might jump up uh, you know, on the sidewalk. So yes, you might. And all we have are the odds. And low odds are not no odds. And sometimes patients say, am I allowed to tell myself the odds are low? I say, yes, but. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and the yes, but is you can say the odds are low as long as you end with, end with a sentence, but it might happen. Because you'll find universally with OCD. The odds are low. The odds are low. The odds are low. That completely destroys the whole low odds. <laughs> totally. <laughs> That will definitely become a thing. (laughs) Another example of that of a TV show is Game of Thrones. I don't know if you watched it when Jon Snow slept with Daenerys, auntie and nephew, and we're all like, yes! (laughs) Whereas in the beginning when Jamie and Cersei got together, we were like, ew! And it's like, how do we get from ew to yes? Like, Mm -hmm. It's just like this. And yeah, I've often thought, I'm like, oh, I wonder what the thoughts going through his mind are just weird and wonderful and able to put it all down on paper. And here we are gobbling it up because it's just, it is, it's what thoughts that have crossed our minds as well. And I like to point out how certain things are likely normal, but not safe. So one of the things at the OC conferences that I've often been able to do is I'll have an audience and I'll get them to chew ABC gum. You know what ABC gum is? No, tell us. Already been chewed. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So everybody's initial response is yours. (laughs) (laughs) Now I have a hard question, and no offense, you're not going to come up with the right answer, which is why I'm asking. Why is that normal? Or why is it not abnormal to have them chew that? Mm. Now I'm going blank. It's okay. Let me now that I've tortured you. (laughs) And I don't know much about you guys in college, but certainly cover a lot of people, but I don't know how many people you were French kissing whom you didn't know their sexual history. Oh yeah, of course. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You tell me what is more dangerous? Chewing gum (laughs) ten hours old or a fresh spit from somebody you don't Mm -hmm. know. That's a good point. And buckets of it when you had makeout sessions in college. (laughs) Exactly. Now I do agree. French kissing, a lot more fun than 10-hour-old gum. <laughs> By the way, here's a really cool thing. 10-hour-old gum is as wet and gushy as if you just took it out of your mouth. Mm, is it really? It doesn't dry out? Yeah. I know. The first time I thought it would have, and it's like, wow, this is, you know. <laughs> so I would have fun in those talks because I would challenge people, and I would first find in the audience a non-OC person. You know, and I don't think get like, oh, I don't have OCD, and it's like, oh, then this should be easy for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> And so we'd all swap gum. And now, like, is that safe? And the answer is the odds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not like, oh, it is or is it? I mean, people overdo the not safe, but it is odds. And so we're going to take risks that we're not saying all this is safe. Don't worry. We're just looking at the odds of like, what is your life going to be? And I guess one other thing is, and I have some forms for it, like, what have you lost to OCD? I really want to hear the really nightmare stories that are humiliating and painful. How have you tortured your family? I'll often ask a parent, like, do you love your kid? Would you do anything for them? You're a liar. Because look what you're doing with your OCD, making them late, making them do whatever, not being available. 
So there are two points to that. One is like, I am talking them into doing it, but we're also changing exposure. It's no longer I am doing this disgusting thing and taking a risk. Now being it's like exposure is love. You know, do you love your kid and not, you know, because if you have OCD, you got a one in four chance your kid's going to have OCD. So that means that you want a 17-year-old who looks at you and thinks you're crazy. You have a one in four chance of having your kid have that. Do you want your kid to be like you? Because no matter what you say, your kid's going to do what they see. So if you don't get better, then you're teaching your kid it's hopeless. One of the questions beside when we talk about living with uncertainty, there are a ton of disasters, but why would you take this risk? What have you got to lose? And I don't care if it's pedophile OCD, I will ask them. Usually I'll ask because you'll enjoy this. What if you woke up tomorrow morning and you woke up and suddenly you knew like, oh my God, having sex with a five-year-old would be like the best thing in the world. Like I am so aroused, but like that would be the best. What would you do? And again, if they want to kill themselves, it's like, no, you can't kill yourself. You're condemned to life. So deal with it. And for Sahara Biden, at some point, it's like, well, do you have to have sex with kids? Like right now, if you see an attractive person, would you think it's a suitable partner? I take it you always run up to them and ask if they'll sleep with you. <laughs> no. No. Okay, so you can have the urge and not give in. But then, of course, you're evil and everything. So it's like, I don't know. I have to assume, I could be wrong, that there are a bunch of people who would really find the idea of children arousing and never do it because they would they all horrible people. It's like they didn't ask for that. They vary as to that one, whether they're horrible or not. And then we usually get them if they have a brother or sister. So if your brother or sister came to you with this problem and said, like, I would never do it and everything, but like, I feel really weird. And it's like, okay, the brother and sister aren't evil and don't need to die. And so at the end of that discussion, we have that thing that we spoke to you in the very beginning about, which is you can't do what you won't imagine. Suddenly they can have it and not necessarily give in. Now, maybe you will give in and that will suck. And, and, you know, yes, you'll have to go to prison and stuff. And we can talk about how you'll make it through there. But just even the initial like, well, what if I really enjoy it? I don't care what it is. We'll talk about how it put the worst. And I imagine you would come across clients who would be like, yeah, but that thing did happen. Because sadly, there's a handful of clients where, I mean, not any client who slept with a five-year-old. But other events, for example, where their worst, most imagined thing has actually occurred and find it hard to grapple with that. But I imagine then it's about going, well, how did you cope? Or how will you cope if you're Yes, exactly. Because when we talk about, because I've had that and it's like, oh, listen, all this stuff I'm saying about living with uncertainty is not a game where we're saying it's not going to really happen. exactly right. Exactly. It can really happen. And the question is, how will I cope? I will ask clients if they know what it means to forgive themselves. And actually, people don't know. If you say, what does it mean to forgive yourself? And you can talk to somebody who's perfectly healthy. You know, what if you've done something horrible, what does it mean to forgive yourself? Most of them won't know. So to forgive yourself is to, you know, assuming that the terrible thing you're actually responsible for, you know, like you actually did do something awful. So one thing that's going to be for sure, that's not part of self-forgiveness, you're going to feel guilty and horrible about it forever. That's fine. That's not a terrible thing. It sucks, but yes. But to forgive yourself is to understand who you were back then and why you did that and to believe that you think you're different now and wouldn't do it again. So you'll forgive that person for doing it. 
but yeah, you know, it's not like if it's really awful, yes, it, it will always feel bad, but you'll figure out how to go on living because punishing yourself forever doesn't really accomplish anything. It doesn't help anybody. Maybe you want to do charity and really great deeds forever. I'm not necessarily suggesting, but just to punish yourself, it's like, who cares? Yeah. And I think a lot of the time when we supervise clinicians and new grads especially really grapple with that in a sense of they kind of get pulled into this idea of needing to not just provide certainty to a degree, but help the client resolve that quickly in a way where it needs to look not perfect, but they shouldn't be experiencing pain and uncomfortable emotions and have that sense of urgency. And you know what's upsetting about that? One would wish that somebody who's a clinician is good at empathy. And I feel like that student isn't using their imagination because, you know, I feel like if any of us were driving a car and a little kid ran out and we unavoidably couldn't help it and we smushed the kid, I think we're going to feel really bad for a while, even though we're innocent. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And if I smushed the kid because I was looking at my phone, I'm going to feel worse. Then talk to this person as if they should be able to resolve it. I have this thing that I ask clinicians. I feel kind towards families when I'm helping them understand because I feel, why should they understand? Clinicians who are being resistant, I I don't feel much mercy towards. So I ask this question. Imagine I have a gun with 100 chambers. One chamber is a bullet. The other chamber is all $50 million. Will you aim this gun at your kid? Okay, fine. How about 1,000 chambers? 999 chances to get 50 mil and one chance. What do you do with that? 10,000. How about 100,000? Like, really, that's 99,998 chance to get the 50 mil, one chance that you'll kill your kid. And let's face it, in your regular life, you put your kid at that risk. There are things you do that got to be at 100,000. Put them in the car. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, they won't take that chance. And it's like, so when you tell a client, oh, this is low odds, don't worry about it. Well, then you're being a terrible clinician because... Unless you'd seriously pull the trigger, which, you know, you're a bit of a psychopath and maybe you'll be a good therapist, but (laughs) it's really not understanding. So it's like you have to accept their pain. You know, a client tells you their world. It's like, what is it like to live in that world? Because when I say, why would you take this risk? It has to be what would convince you that it'd be worth it in that. The only reason it's not worth pulling that gun on your kid is the alternative isn't that you're torturing the kid with your OCD. Which way do you want to torture your kid or your spouse? We have to sit with our own uncertainty just as much as our clients do. What this speaks to, I think, is the importance of us doing our own work and actually thinking about our own personal death anxiety, existential themes, and actually making sure that we are aware that we are actually accepting uncertainty in life ourselves, that we're not just using buzzwords and teaching something that we actually don't believe ourselves. Because I think we'll get caught out. If this isn't something that we're actually practicing ourselves, I don't know that you're right, that we can be creative with our clients, that we can sit with their discomfort, that we can really go all the way. Mm. Right. Because so many therapists are just thinking of technique. My best compliment from clients is when they ask me if I have OCD. Because then it's like, oh, wow, it just seems to them, there's the only way I can get it. So like, I love that. I had that the other day, actually. I get it often, but one of my clients was like, are you sure you don't have OCD? <laughs> I was like, well, I have all these experiences that I bring in as empathy. And one comes to mind that I do share sometimes with my clients is 
when I got married, well, leading up to my wedding, while a long time ago now, well, really not that long, but seven years, that feels like it. <laughs> it's longer than a year. I was married in 73, so you're still yeah. you. <laughs> leading up to the wedding, I had so many intrusive thoughts, like thoughts popping in, if we're not calling them that anymore. I had thoughts popping in about falling down the stairs and smashing my face and... I had thoughts about people I loved dying really close to the wedding, including my dad and all of these sorts of things. And three months after the wedding, my dad did die very suddenly from a heart attack and it was completely unexpected. And I couldn't help but think in those moments of grief, which I still experience today, is did he die because I thought of him dying at that time when I was getting married? Is that the reason why? So like those sorts of thoughts were coming in where my mind just wanted to find a reason. And so it's this idea of if I ran with that, you can see just how much that's going to then impact my functioning, my life, other ways of thinking. And it was so much pain to sit with because it's all very uncertain in the sense of going, well, nothing we do can control anything we do in life. And we've set up this facade of keeping busy, having a schedule, doing all these things so we don't have to think about it because we all want certainty at the end of the day. You remind me of a favorite story that I like doing with the cognitive behavior therapists who are going to fix your irrational thoughts. A client had come in where her fear was she could kill people with her thoughts. And she had a great reason because she'd seen some news broadcasts where they claimed that people being prayed for were being saved versus people not. Terrible study, but she doesn't know that. So she correctly concluded that if I can, that I could kill people with my thoughts. So she kind of we spent 24-7 trying to not have killing thoughts or trying to undo them. And she had seen a few therapists before me. And so she comes to me and I said, well, maybe you can kill people with your thoughts. But at this point, we know you have a low hit rate. <laughs> <laughs> your kill count is zero right now. <laughs> for, as far as we know. I said, well, so, yeah, that you know of. Yes. <laughs> In treatment, we're going to work on killing people with your thoughts. We are not doing this to prove that it can happen. We're doing it because you're making yourself crazy trying to control your thoughts. We want you to get used to having these thoughts, living with the possibility. So in the first week of treatment, we worked on killing her dad. And at the end of the week, he died. Oh, gosh. He was sick, but there was nobody was expecting that. And I had said to her that in the course of treatment, someone might die. And if they die, I want you to stay in treatment. Mm-hmm. You don't get to know if it's coincidence. Let's say you knock off a second person, really unlucky. You can knock off three people, and it's got to be three separate occasions. You knock off a busload, that's why. <laughs> three separate occasions, okay, we'll try to do something about your thoughts, and we'll call the American CIA because they'll probably have some use for you. Anyway, she stayed in treatment and got better. And the question is, did she kill her father with her thoughts? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Would it be my first guess? No. But it's possible, and like, it could be the only time she had that power, or it could be I killed him with my thoughts and didn't realize it, but motivated by her thoughts. It's like, bottom line is, if we can't kill enough people, we can't get there. I had some clients this past few years ago. It happened too. They they were worried about their thoughts and religious things, so we engaged in the witchcraft ritual with two of them to kill someone. I was so disappointed it didn't work because for both of them, and you know, usually you're picking somebody they don't really want to die. Usually we just don't know someone that they hate that much. Anyway, for both of them, we tried to kill Trump. 
<laughs> I was just thinking, I said to me, guys, we don't know if we did it or it's coincidence. <laughs> you know, we had, we put a time limit on it. Like it had to be a week, but it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> we don't get to know anything. And the reason I don't call it intrusive thoughts, I tell clients that they have three traits we're not getting rid of. I mean, first of all, research, you know, yes, somebody, why can't they be certain? And it's like, well, there is no certainty. And research has shown us that the only people who are certain are stupid. <laughs> the right clients come in there, you know, people with OCD tend to be smart, so they, we can't make them dumb. I ask them if they're aware that they're creative. And if they're not, we point out that the core of creativity is two words, what if. Now, they think creativity, they're thinking like art and music and everything, but that's not what creativity for. Creativity is survival. Where's the tiger? How can I make sure it doesn't eat me? Where's the tiger? I can eat it. So in the modern world, it's not just physical survival. It's what is a threat to me as a person. If it seems like your OCD attacks what's most important, it's like, well, yeah, that's what you're afraid of losing. So you come up with creative things. You know, if I'm a mother and I want to protect my kid, maybe I'm going to focus on illness. I don't want my kid to die of illness, but I might feel that I can have that under control. I got to think of, I'm like, without meaning to, I'm going to search for like, what's beyond my control? What if I'm the killer? Oh my God. How do I protect my child against me? So they're normal thoughts and very creative and you're not worrying about terrorists coming into your house right now, but if you found out terrorists were two blocks from your house shooting people, oh, you're going to start looking at your house thinking like, how am I protecting myself? So OCD is constantly looking for that. And that's why, you know, and again, if you look at literature, we see all those things. And the third trait they have is they have a great imagination, which is being able to think about things so vividly it feels real and they scare the crap out of themselves. So this what if is a beautiful, you know, and these traits are not their OCD. With or without OCD, this is by their OCD. That's a really cool component of working with clients with OCD is recognizing that so much of their experience is actually just their humanness and it's not all deficit and it's not all disordered. It's not all disorder. It's not all symptoms. And it's not all about resolving or getting rid of all of these things. It's about actually accepting that a lot of this is is actually just who you are and that there's real strengths and some of these aspects are real gifts that are worth embracing. A client of mine a while ago who's been grappling with OCD for a while and really doing a whole lot better now said, you know, I thought life was hard because I had OCD, but now that I'm living with uncertainty a lot better, I've realized that life is hard. I thought it was going to be all roses and smelling like fairy, I mean, fairy dust. Does that even smell? I don't know, whatever, but like, you know, <laughs> maybe like a unicorn Flowers world. And unicorn. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it, she goes, it's not. I'm like, no, life does suck a lot of the time. And sometimes it's wonderful. And we've just got to go for the ride, sit down, get in, hold on, and just go with it. <laughs> and you know, part of acceptance, the two key words will be and versus or. My wife and I were uh, in the beginning of the pandemic when the states are in a lockdown and we were taking our terrifying pandemic walk. And Kathy said to me, you know, this would be such a great day if all this weren't happening. I said, you're wrong, Kathy, which as your spouses might know, it's not necessarily fun being married to a psychologist. <laughs> I said, it is a beautiful day. We're together. We're not having anything to do. We're holding hands. It's like really great. And it sucks that the pandemic's going yeah, it's on. Those two oh, things can coexist. Yeah. So many people, but it's like, this would be good if this weren't happening. And the fact is, no, this is good and, and this sucks. Because yeah, yeah, the yeah. other is a denial and it kind of puts you in a terrible world. It really does. And it's the same for when people expect 
when they're working towards learning to live with uncertainty, they expect that coping to look perfect or good or pretty or whatever. And it's like, no, it's meant to be messy. You're meant to have room for all of those feelings. And yeah, sometimes you will recognize that there are good things happening, but at the same time, you can also feel the mess. Yeah. This has been such a riveting discussion. You're right. We can talk about this for hours and hours and hours and hours. (laughs) John, what is something you now know that you wish you had known earlier in your career? My first answer would be the smartest, like, why I've known everything always. (laughs) But that's not true. But I have no idea. And sometimes if I read something of mine really old, it's like, oh, wow, I was thinking about that back then. I didn't think it was that old. God, I've come up with nothing new for a long time. (laughs) When I'm supervising interns, I'll tell them because they discover this, you're really going to be a little overwhelmed initially because, you know, I'll say these things and I have a great repertoire. But by the end of the year, you're going to realize it's a great repertoire, but it is limited. It's what it is. I think I know 40 minutes of extra material that's not in my book. (laughs) So no, I don't have an answer to Mm, that. That's okay. (laughs) The other question that we're asking all of our guests, John, is in the interest of normalizing the experience of the thoughts that we have, do you have any particular disturbing thoughts or uncomfortable thoughts that you'd be willing to share? I'm always willing to share. I always tell my clients they can ask me anything. There's only two or three things I won't answer, one of which is what are those two or three things? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody has successfully hit them. (laughs) It's one of the things, no, no, I'll answer that. I'll take my mind anywhere. So, I mean, in a way, I don't find the thought, you know, so I, I might think in a way that does horrify me about torture, mm. you know, I'm being tortured, or I can think about what it would be like to lose my kid or spouse and how horrible that would be. And I can let myself have that pain and then not be like terrified they're actually going to die. I'm not scared of my thoughts. And what I think of as my pursuit of rejection, I have an unpublished novel. I have some really horrifying scenes in it. But technically, it's in a novel, so it's not horrifying. But that's not true, right? It's like I have the thought without that. I think it's my habit that, again, whatever a client tells me, I think they're telling me the rules of their reality. So I have to imagine that reality that way. So I have to put meat on it. So I currently don't have thoughts I don't like. Yeah, which is a lovely model for the work that you've done about internalizing the notion of accepting uncertainty and just what we can achieve by really working on this. That our capacity to sit with and exist with and live with with these experiences and how normal it is and how normal it can be if we can let go of the fight. I mean, I traumatized my family two weeks ago. At dinner, apparently, I passed out. And there's a certain period where apparently I stopped breathing and my son and wife thought I was going to drop dead on the table. My son gave me mouth to mouth. It all lasted five minutes, but about five minutes later, the medics came. So I get a zillion tests in the hospital over the weekend. I conveniently did it on a Friday so I wouldn't have to miss any work. And I got the garbage diagnosis, meaning they couldn't find anything wrong. So they called it atypical syncope, which means you fainted. And it's atypical because that not breathing thing is pretty weird. Basically, since all your tests were good, we don't think it'll happen again. So as long as it doesn't happen again, it's okay. Now, I didn't need to ask the obvious question, which is like, what if it happens again? Because I already know the answer. It's like, oh, well, then you're in deep trouble because something's wrong and we have no idea what it is. So I'm actually not worried about it. You know, my creative that I did. My family, oh, they're, I was not allowed to sit in the same chair and we couldn't get take out from the same place. But apparently that worked because I didn't pass out again. So. 
Oh. I kind of in some twisted way think it's funny. <laughs> I mean, the garbage diagnosis is better than Absolutely. finding something wrong. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, and I find when I've shared it with clients, they keep, you know, so you can tell the hypochondriacs because they keep asking me a lot of questions like, did they look for this? Did they look for that? <laughs> It's like, you really want to know, don't you? <laughs> Obviously, I didn't go to any doctors who knew what they were doing. So you're going to think of what they didn't think of. But, uh, oh. I don't know if I will be able to cope with any uncertainty, but I, I passed that test yeah. so far. Yeah. John, thank you for your time today. Sincerely, for anyone listening who hasn't read your book, it's called Freedom from Obsessive Compulsive Disorder a personalized recovery program for living with uncertainty. And we will post a link in our show notes. Thank you for this rich discussion and for your generosity of time. We really appreciate it. It has been a pleasure. One of the things I've gotten from talking to you, because I don't always get this, is, wow, these guys really know what they're doing. So I can send people in Melbourne to them. (laughs) Unfortunately, all my current clients in Australia or in Sydney, (laughs) but it's a relief to know that they have some place to go. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. Thank you. That's a high compliment coming from you, John. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. <laughs>